It's been an adventure for David, but it doesn't seem that being king of Israel has been a huge amount of fun. First, his son Absalom rebelled against him and attempted to seize the throne. Once David had crushed the coup, a supporter of Israel's former king, Saul, rose up with a worrying number of supporters. He too was defeated. Then, sensing discord in the kingdom, Israel's age-old enemy, the Philistines, invaded opportunistically. They too were repelled. David must be wondering what else his kingship can throw at him. And the truth is, the drama is far from over as the second book of Samuel reaches its season finale. My name is Chaz Bayfield and this is Holy Bible episode 75, The Sky Splitter. Episode 75. I'm so incredibly grateful to you listeners. We podcasters spend most of our time alone in a room speaking into a microphone. To know that there are people that value what we do is a huge boost, especially as this particular podcast is such a strange fruit. Where else can Christians and atheists both feel welcome? Some have said Holy Bible is too secular to be taken seriously by any churches, others that it's too kind to creationists, and others who believe that every word of the Bible is true. My belief is that everyone has a right to their own faith or lack of it, and it's not my job to knock it. It's down to listeners to make their own minds up. In many ways, this is more a literature podcast than a Christianity one. I simply take the Bible as a book and retell it, minus any preaching, adding in a bit of commentary and observation, much of it from people far wiser than me. And remember, the Bible is the best-selling book of all time. So, join me as we wrap up the Bible's 10th book. Only 56 to go. Philistine army has just been emphatically defeated and at this point the second book of Samuel stops for a quick personnel update. David's army commander Joab was axed in the previous episode after dealing the death blow to David's son Absalom. He then stabbed his replacement Amasa to death. Readers now learn that Joab has been reinstated and is now sole commander of Israel's forces once again. Israel's leadership team under David has been covered in an earlier episode and many of the men retain their jobs in this latest cabinet reshuffle. Benaiah is still in charge of David's bodyguard and a man named Shiva has replaced Seraiah as secretary. Jehoshaphat remains an advisor, Zadok and Abiathar keep their role as Israel's priests while David now has his own personal priest, Ira. A new role has emerged, head of forced labour and the position has been given to a man named Adoniram. Readers are also told that the region is gripped by famine, and when David asks God why they are suffering, he is told that it is because Saul attacked and killed the Gibeonites. The Gibeonites are the savvy bunch of Canaanites who escape a thumping from the Israelites at the time of the conquest under Joshua. Feel free to head back to episode 53, Rogue Soldier, for a recap. This tribe pretended not to be Canaanites, dressing in rags and showing Joshua stale food to suggest that they had been travelling for days, where in reality they were from just around the corner. 
As Joshua made a treaty with them, he couldn't then kill them once he discovered that he had been played. But he did punish the tribe by making them servants of the Israelites forever. The deal that guaranteed Gibeon's safety in perpetuity remained in place until Saul's patriotic zeal led to the near annihilation of the tribe. David is one of the few kings of Israel who appears to be genuinely concerned with following the will of God, and the attack on Gibeon by Saul sits uncomfortably with him. It's the Bible equivalent of bad karma, and David summons Gibeon's leaders and asks how he can make things good with them. That way, he believes that God's blessing can be restored to Israel. The Gibeonites know that they have no right to demand money from Israel, nor to call for the deaths of any Israelites. However, Saul's attack decimated them and left them homeless. Saul should be punished for this, they tell David, before asking that seven of Saul's descendants should be killed and their bodies left exposed at Gibeah, Saul's former stronghold. It's a humiliating act of revenge, but David agrees to it, taking two sons born to Saul's concubine Rizpah and five sons of Saul's daughter Merab and handing them over to the Gibeonites. He spares Mephibosheth and his son because of the promise which he made to the young man's father, Jonathan, who was Saul's son and David's closest friend. But the other men related to Saul are killed and their bodies exposed on a nearby hillside. Rizpah refuses to leave her son's bodies and remains with them, sitting on a sackcloth for the duration of the famine to stop wild animals and birds from picking at the corpses. Her presence will have also deterred human scavengers from robbing the bodies. David is sufficiently moved to gather the bones of Saul and Jonathan from Jabesh Gilead. They were brought to the town after being retrieved from the Philistines after Israel's defeat at Mount Gilboa, and he places them, along with the remains of the seven recently executed men, in the tomb of Saul's father. As if to demonstrate that God has blessed David's actions, readers are told that the famine finally ends. Not ones to give up without a fight, Israel's old enemy, the Philistines, come back for one last hurrah. They would have been better off staying home. However, David's final skirmish with his old enemy almost proves fatal. In the thick of the fighting, a trophy-hunting Philistine with a spear whose bronze tip weighs almost eight pounds tries to assassinate the king. But Abishai steps in just in time, smashes the man down and kills him. For his own safety, David's men plead with their leader to take a back seat in any further military skirmishes, so that, quote, the lamp of Israel will not be extinguished. Three further battles against Philistine invaders are mentioned. In one, a descendant from an ancient race of giants known as the Rephaim, believed to have once inhabited Canaan, is killed. In another, Goliath's brother is killed. The man seems every bit as physically impressive as the giant defeated by David before he was king. The third takes place in the city of Gath, where a giant with six fingers and toes on each hand and foot is struck down by one of David's brothers. Fun fact, the condition of having extra fingers or toes is called hexadactyly. David not only wins the battles against the Philistines, he spends an entire chapter of the Bible singing about them. This shouldn't come as a surprise to readers. 
David was originally brought to Saul's court to play music to soothe away the king's bouts of the blues. He's also credited with writing many of the songs that make up the Book of Psalms. In his song, David tells God that he is his rock and his shield. God is also David's horn of salvation, which seems like an odd metaphor. But in the Old Testament, horns are seen as a source of strength in the sense that they afford animals protection and power. David sees this power as the force that has rescued him. The king sings of how he has been saved from violent people and that when he asked God to intervene, he delivered, rescuing him from his enemies. In poetry that would not look out of place in the book of Psalms, David describes how waves of death and torrents of destruction overwhelmed him, how death trapped him like the cords of a net and the snares set by animal trappers. David describes how he cried out to God in his distress and how God heard his cry from his temple, his anger at what was happening to David, making the earth tremble and smoke and emit fire. In a kind of post-apocalyptic vision, David sees God splitting the skies and appearing on dark clouds while riding the cherubim, the heavenly creatures whose likenesses sit at either side of the Jews' most sacred possession, a golden chest called the Ark of the Covenant, which is kept in the tabernacle. Surrounded by darkness, despite it being daytime, God rides, quote, the wings of the wind on a rainstorm illuminated by bolts of lightning and accompanied by roars of thunder. The whole event, if not a supernatural one, appears to be describing a major volcanic explosion where an ash cloud blocks out the sun, creating its own meteorology. To David, the thunder is the voice of God and the lightning is the arrows which he deploys to scatter David's enemies. David describes being beneath a deep ocean only to have a furious God expose the seabed with one blast of breath from his nostrils, plucking him from the danger of more powerful enemies and placing him safely on dry land. God saved him from disaster, David says, and attributes his rescue to God being pleased with him. According to him, God has seen his upright life and how he has followed God's laws. God knows that he has remained faithful and has kept his hands clean, living a blameless life. Readers will be forgiven for raising eyebrows at how completely David has airbrushed out the tawdry incident with Bathsheba and Uriah from his resume. Head back to episode 71, The Widowmaker, for a recap. David sings of how God remains faithful, blameless and pure to all those who demonstrate these virtues. The humble are saved, he says, but the devious and arrogant will be brought down. Now in full flow, the king describes God as a lamp that illuminates the darkness so that he can march his soldiers. God can help him scale walls that might otherwise present an impassable obstacle. He is flawless and perfect, David sings, and because he is the only God, he can protect anyone who takes advantage of his shelter. God also appears to be a huge help in battle. He gives David strength, allows him to remain safe, and gives him the feet of a mountain deer when he is on rocky ground. He makes his path wide so that he doesn't risk twisted ankles and trains him for combat, making him strong enough to bend a bow made from bronze. This clearly is metaphorical. 
Despite bows being important Bronze Age weapons, there is no suggestion that they were ever made of the metal. Wood is much lighter and more flexible. The praises flow from David. He pursued his enemies and crushed them emphatically, he says. They were humbled. They fled and he destroyed them. Not even God answered their cries for help as he beat them to powder and left them like mud in the street. David attributes these victories to God's intervention. He believes that God has helped spare him from his enemies and that he has deliberately kept him as Israel's king. According to the song, people who David has never met now bow before him in terror. The king sees God as very much alive, suggesting that all other gods are not. Praise be to my rock, he sings. To him, God is his personal avenger and places him as king over other nations. This is borne out by the large number of former Canaanites in David's entourage. His support team is conspicuously multicultural. Despite his advanced years, David is overflowing with love and praise for God, who he believes has consistently had his back and has given him the edge over his enemies. In the case of Sheba, who rebelled in the previous episode, God has rescued him from what he describes as a violent man. This is why he feels the need to tell all nations how great he thinks God is, how he believes God has been faithful to the man who he anointed as king, and how he will continue to look after David's descendants forever. The song is one of the Bible's most euphoric moments, written by one of Israel's finest poets and its greatest king. It's also a mission statement for the future monarchy, leaving the people of Israel in no doubt that the God who they believe in will help any ruler to carry out their job well, provided that they trust in him. For the time being, the action and adventure of David's story has ended and the pace slows down as the king enters his final days. Having recently sung about his charmed life thanks to his relationship with God, David continues where he left off. In a speech referred to by the book as his last words, the king describes himself as chosen and raised up to a position of greatness by God. He acknowledges that he is the hero of popular songs and that God's spirit not only gave him words to say, but also spoke directly to him, telling him how a godly monarch should rule. According to David, when a king does the right thing because he follows God, he is like a sunrise on a cloudless morning, and like sunshine after rain that makes the grass grow. If God hadn't been in favour of his rule, he asks, why would he have made a binding promise to him that his kingdom would continue eternally? Why would he have rescued him and given him everything he wanted? David sees himself in stark contrast to evil men whose destiny is to be thrown to one side like worthless thorns. These pernicious weeds must be handled with iron tools and spears before being burned, he says, suggesting the violent end which he sees for God's enemies. The book then lists the exceptional warriors to whose strength and prowess the king owes many of his military successes. They sound like giants, but the mighty men who are name-checked as David's elite fighting force are simply brave and loyal soldiers who act as his royal bodyguard. Blessed with near-superhuman powers, the mighty men are the navy seals of their day. 
Chief among them are the Three, three warriors led by a man called Josheb Bashabeth, who once killed 800 men in a single battle. Like citations for heroes awarded the Victoria Cross or the Medal of Honour, the deeds of the Three are listed. Eleazar stood ground against the Philistines when the rest of his army had retreated and his sword actually froze in his hand from overuse. Shammah remained fighting Philistines in a heroic last stand in a lentil field after his own army had fled. The three are the standout soldiers from an already elite force known as the Thirty. Despite being known as this, the cohort includes 37 warriors. These men broke through enemy lines after the Philistines captured Bethlehem just to get to a well to fetch water for David to drink. David honoured them by pouring the water away as a gift to God because his men braved their lives for it. Abishai, the brother of Israel's army commander Joab, is named as being de facto leader of the three, despite not being one of their number. Abishai is credited with killing 300 enemies with his spear, making him more famous and more honoured than the three. Benaiah, chief of David's private bodyguard, is named as one of the thirty. He kills Moab's two fiercest warriors, single-handedly dispatches a lion in a pit in freezing conditions, and strikes down a giant spear-wielding Egyptian with just a club. Benaiah also appears to be as famous as the three, despite not being one of them, and is named as the most honoured member of the thirty. The book then lists the thirty, which includes some of the characters who readers will have already met in the accounts of David's campaigns, among them Ittai and Uriah, former husband of Bathsheba. These are David's crack troops, and their bravery serves as an inspiration to his regular soldiers, who no doubt aspire to be among the thirty, if not the three. The second book of Samuel ends on a down note. In a bizarre episode, it appears that God encourages David to sin so that Israel can be punished. God appears to be angry with Israel and seems determined to teach the nation a lesson. What the Israelites have done isn't clear, but the tripwire is flipped when David orders a military headcount. The book attributes this to God getting inside David's head, but the king should know that counting the army suggests that he is putting his trust in manpower rather than God's divine assistance. This is one of the Bible's trickier passages. Are readers to believe that God made David sin? There is much debate today about a line in Christianity's most hallowed incantation, the Lord's Prayer. Lead us not into temptation suggests that if the prayer were not spoken, God might actually and deliberately dangle temptation in believers' faces. In fact, Pope Francis has said publicly that he would like this line amended. Even if God doesn't personally tempt David, the suggestion is that he actively allows him to be tempted. In one of the Old Testament's later books, the first book of Chronicles, the temptation is credited to the devil, a build which sits more comfortably with Christians. The history of Jewish settlement should have informed Israel's king that it is never numbers or firepower that wins the day. Victories in the Bible are always credited to God, who uses supernatural means to spook the enemy, make Israel's numbers appear larger than they are, or otherwise create panic in the ranks of attacking armies. However, plenty of kings after David suffer from making military alliances rather than relying on God, 
despite prophets such as Isaiah warning them that divine protection is far more ironclad than man-made treaties. Joab is somewhat panicked by his king's request for a head count. To him, this is the equivalent of pushing the red button but turning the bomb against Israel. Even if God multiplied the troops by 100 and David saw them all, why would the king need to know numbers? The commander's objections are overruled and he and the other military chiefs are sent off to tally up Israel's fighting men. The county begins east of the Jordan and moves north in a roughly anti-clockwise circle, crossing back over the river to the western tribes before moving south. After nearly 10 months of gathering data, Joab reports that in the combined territories of Israel and Judah, there are around 1.3 million fighting men. The morning after the numbers come in, David realises what he has done and is conscience-stricken, begging God for forgiveness. Gad, the prophet who, like Nathan, appears to work exclusively for the king, delivers what he says is God's judgment. David is offered a choice of three punishments. Three years of famine, three months of being hounded by his enemies, or three days of plague. David leaves the choice to God, requesting only that he doesn't fall into the hands of his enemies. According to the book, God dispatches his angel of death to bring plague on the people of Israel. 70,000 people die in the pandemic, and just as the angel has his hand stretched out to infect Jerusalem, God instructs him to cease and desist. Seeing firsthand the catastrophe that has been visited on his people, David is contrite. God should be punishing the sinful shepherd, not the innocent sheep, he says, asking God to discipline him and his family instead. Gad's message is simply that the king must build an altar to God at the place where the pandemic finally stopped. The spot is owned by a Canaanite called Araona, who uses it to thresh wheat. Araona has no idea why he is being visited by the king. When he hears that David wants to buy a patch of his land to build an altar to thank him for stopping the plague, he offers it for free. Not only that, he throws in his oxen to sacrifice, as well as his threshing sledge and ox yokes for wood to build a fire. Arauna shares his hope that God will accept this sacrifice, but David insists on paying full price. A sacrifice isn't a sacrifice if it doesn't cost him anything. Money changes hands, an altar is built, and offerings made. Israel's king negotiating real estate with a commoner is a surprisingly urbane end to one of the Bible's most exciting books, but it seems like David has done just enough to get Israel off the hook, end the plague, and set his nation up for what he believes will be its never-ending monarchy. The spot where David builds his altar is later chosen by Solomon as the site of the Jerusalem temple. David survives into the Bible's next book, but even then his family troubles do not end. He also has no control over the son who rules after him, nor the grandson, great-grandson and so on who come after them, many of whose utter inability to reign make David's rule look even more glorious. The Books of Kings next. Ho 
Holy Bible is written and produced by me, Chaz Bayfield, with music by Michael Old and John Hawkins Music. Cover art is by Lisa Goff. You can follow us on Facebook or Twitter. Just search Holy Bible Podcast. And if you like reading as much as you do listening, Snakes and Angels, a secular walk through the first five books of the Bible is available on Amazon. Thank you very much and see you next time. Mm -hmm.